Well, good morning. It's a good day. There's, there's, but you don't want me to sing. Can I move these papers? You, you, you don't want me to sing. Well, I just want to say this, or start off saying this. Change is inevitable, and it's nearly, nearly always uncomfortable. And sometimes it's even painful. This past week, I got to eat with our uh, seniors, Joy Fellowship at Golden Corral. So I took advantage to uh, sit and talk to Sally Dixon and Mary Odie, since Pastor Bruce had mentioned their history. And I'm like, man, this is a resource. I, w- I should have videotaped it because it was awesome. They're a wealth of information. I didn't really realize that Mary actually attended school on this site in the Red Brick Schoolhouse. How cool is that? I mean, it really is one. And she was in it. That's amazing. Sally got saved in the first church that actually met in the Red Brick Schoolhouse. That's even more phenomenal. She got saved in Sunday school when it was Glenwood Community Church. You talk about experiencing change. These ladies have seen it, have seen it and experienced it in this location. They were telling me how directly across from the church, which I'd never realized, there was three farmhouses and it was all fields. And I'm like, you're kidding me. All I've ever known over there was all woods. And now, guess what? There's no woods. And soon there's going to be an athletic complex. They know and have seen a red brick schoolhouse become a church and then a church building replaced that school, a larger auditorium that we're in now added to that, an education building added to that, and an interior renovation after that. These ladies have experienced all that and at least four name changes, and Lord willing, a fifth one next week. They've seen Glenwood Community Church, Glenwood Baptist Church, Glenwood Baptist Temple, our Shriner moment, and then Glenwood Baptist Church. And then we went back, and now, Lord willing, LifeBridge Baptist Church. And as I left from talking to them this week, I thought a little bit about all the changes they've been through and what were the three constants through all of that. And it was the redeeming message of the gospel from various pastors. It was the compelling mission of this church under various names. And it was the ongoing membership and commitment of people like them and people like many of you. You see, regardless of the name over the years, that's what has made a life-changing difference in our lives. Amen? Amen. That's why we're here. It's because of the redeeming message of the gospel. It's because of the compelling mission to go out to the lost. It's because of the ongoing membership that makes up this wonderful church. And so that's why I'm enthusiastic and prayerfully committed to the new name, LifeBridge. Because LifeBridge captures the redeeming message of the gospel. LifeBridge calls us to that compelling mission as a church And LifeBridge challenges us as members to be bridge builders to the lost, both locally and globally. And before you think these are just catchy phrases, they are, but they're real life. And they make a difference in real lives. You see, a member of this church in the late 70s chose to be a bridge builder to take this ministry into her workplace at a public library at Oak Park High School. 
she built a bridge to squirrely high school students, of which I was one, and she cared enough to build a bridge from this congregation to her workplace. You see, when I crossed that bridge, which began with an invitation to eat tacos, it's really that simple like in the video. This congregation and its warmth, its love, and its acceptance was a life bridge to a skinny, short, hurting young man who needed the love, the community, the purpose, the direction, and above all, the biblical truth in order to build a life for the future. You see, this, and, and, and here's the good things, because this is what you can do with this name. That bridge wasn't a toll bridge. You see, I didn't have to pay anything. I entered those doors, and it was all free. It was all free in Jesus. This pulpit was a life bridge. And do you realize the same pulpit that was preached? It's inside this pulpit. How many churches have two pulpits? That pulpit is inside this pulpit. It goes to show you things can change on the outside. But what remains the same? You see, this pulpit was a life bridge from short spiritual talks in the church I grew up in to gospel preaching that was Bible-based and Spirit-empowered. And I thank God that what came from this pulpit was not a man-made bridge that men came up with, but it was a God-revealed message that was preached. This church was a life bridge from my confusion to my convictions, from an, my aimlessness to being purpose-driven, from not knowing what to do with my life to knowing that God had shaped me to be a pastor-teacher in the local church. It, it bridged the gap from my seminary greenhorn days to investing my adult life in the people of this church. It was a bridge from being a young couple praying for chi a child to God giving us the gift of our daughter who now is about to graduate. You see, this church has been a life bridge to me, to my family, and to my ministry. This church in this location, with all its weaknesses, with all its imperfections, was a life bridge. And so that's why I'm ready to vote on a name that reflects what we've always been in the past, that reflects what we are still here now in the present, and re what reflects by God's grace what we're going to be in the future. A bridge to life. You see, that's a name with a redeeming message for the lost. It's a name with a compelling mission for our church. And it's a name that challenges us as members to be bridge builders. So would you join me and my family and pray for the rest of this week, every day this week, for God's will to be done in this vote next week. Not praying for my preferences or yours. I have all sorts of preferences on names. And I guarantee you probably wouldn't like most of them. But that's not what I'm praying about, and that's not what we're voting on. We're voting on what God can do as a congregation for God's will to be done in this church as it is in heaven for the fame of his name. Praying for what will most glorify God next Sunday. Praying for what will unite us together under our God-given leadership that we have chosen to lead us. Praying for what will enable us to cast a greater vision for our mission, 
our message, and our membership. You see, change is inevitable, and nearly always it's uncomfortable. But when change is intentional, when we unite together and choose together for that change, then it becomes motivational and it becomes missional. And that's what I'm praying for. Well, if you'll uh, take out your Bible and stand with me this morning as for our scripture reading and turn to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5, you'll find the text of our, what we'll be using for a continuation this, in the uh, series on Daniel thriving in Babylon. We're going to read Daniel chapter 5, we're going to read the entire chapter, which is verses 1 through 31, which sets the, uh, the stage for Pastor Bruce continuing in that sermon series this morning. If you need a pew Bible or a Bible, there's a, a Bible in the pew in front of you. You can find it, find it on page 504. So listen along as I read Daniel chapter 5. Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God which had been in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans and the soothsayers, the king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and they shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed, and his lords were astonished. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. The queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now, king, now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who was one of the captives from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard of you, that the Spirit of God is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the astrologers, have brought in before me and that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not give me the interpretation of the thing. And I have heard of you that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high, 
God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men, his heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. But you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They brought the vessels of this house before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and bronze, gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him, and this writing was written. And this is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, uparsin. And this interpretation of each word. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your power and your might. Lord, we ask that you would be glorified in what we say and do, and that we would open our hearts and minds to learn from you and to thrive in a culture that is against you, but to stand for your word and your principles in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. What happens when God crashes the party? What happens when God crashes the party? That's the question that this chapter addresses. Daniel chapter 5. What happens when God crashes the party? Make no mistake about it, as we learned last Sunday, and I so appreciate Pastor Chris filling in for me and tackling two of the more difficult chapters in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 2, and then last Sunday, Daniel chapter 5. So thank you, Chris. As we learned last Sunday, make no mistake about it, God is large and He is in charge. In the first four chapters, we have seen several snapshots of King Nebuchadnezzar and how he has ruled over God's people and how God displayed His overwhelming power and wisdom in order to humble King Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, we have seen three times Nebuchadnezzar was somewhat enticed by what he was seeing from God's demonstration of his power, but his allegiance was never changed. That is until he was humbled by God in Daniel chapter 4. After regaining his sanity, Nebuchadnezzar said that God actually did a wondrous thing in turning his heart from worshiping himself to praising the Most High God. Now that is pretty awesome. It's a pretty cool story of God's patience with man's sin. 
with our sin, leading to repentance and restoration. In other words, God is good. God is gracious. God is merciful, not always giving us the consequences that we deserve. I'm thankful for that. But make no mistake, God is also just. And His judgments are sure. His judgments are swift toward the proud. And that's what we see here in Daniel chapter 5 with this other king, a king by the name of Belshazzar. In fact, if you put these two chapters side by side, which I think God wants us to do, that's the benefit when we read books of the Bible all the way through and we see the storyline in context. And so put these two chapters side by side and what we see are two evil kings with two vital messages from God Himself. Notice this in your notes coming up on the screen. We see God's complete pardon for the humble in King Nebuchadnezzar. We see that in Daniel chapter 4. But now here in Daniel 5, we see God's sure judgment for the proud in King Belshazzar. You see, Daniel 5, we could say it this way, it is the flip side of Daniel chapter 4. In Daniel 4, Daniel used King Nebuchadnezzar's humility to affirm that the repentant, get this, the repentant in their heart, they are the ones who reap the rewards of God's grace, however bleak our past may be. But in chapter 5, Daniel will now use King Belshazzar's pride to declare that the rebellious reap the consequences of God's wrath, however secure they think they are in their lives. In these two chapters, we see God's complete pardon, complete forgiveness for the humble, as well as God's sure judgment for the proud. In the 1930s, there was a politician in the South who was powerful. He was the governor of Louisiana, and then he became its senator. Huey P. Long, he built roads, he built bridges, he built Louisiana State University. He built a formidable political machine. He was known as the Kingfish. He was flamboyant, he was popular, he was ambitious. He had aspirations of challenging Franklin D. Roosevelt for president. And then in 1935, at the height of his career, he was gunned down in the state capitol. His last words were, God, don't let me die. I have so much to do. He was 42 years old. Listen, we never know when death is coming. Sometimes it comes at the most inconvenient time. It did for King Belshazzar. It happened the night Babylon fell. The Persian army was outside the city, but you would have never known it from what was happening inside the city. Belshazzar was giving the party of the ages. Nebuchadnezzar was gone, and his grandson Belshazzar was now king of Babylon. And as we join Belshazzar's party, as we look in on this party, the great kingdom of Babylon is now under attack from the Medes and the Persians. In fact, the capital city of Babylon is actually surrounded by the Medo-Persian armies. They have already captured Belshazzar's father. And Belshazzar, he knows it. So why? Why is he throwing this party? 
Because he thinks. He thinks he and his people are invincible inside the walls of Babylon. Over a million people live in Babylon. The city is surrounded by a wall that is 350 feet high, 87 feet wide. In fact, you could race four full chariots side by side around the top of the wall that surrounds the city. Guards are constantly watching from the 100 watchtowers. The Euphrates River ran through the middle of the city. There is a 30-foot moat outside the wall that runs around the city. The city of Babylon is considered impregnable. And so the city of Babylon is under siege. But no one is worried inside the city. After all, they have a 20-year food supply. If they never grew another crop, they could live 20 years off the stockpile that they have. And so Belshazzar and his people, they feel invincible. They feel secure. In fact, by 6th century standards, they are smug, they are sophisticated, and they are superior. Belshazzar is so sure of himself that he now throws this massive party to show he doesn't fear the armies surrounding his city. Now, there is a unique arrogance and pride about pretending that everything is awesome when, in fact, defeat and destruction are right around the corner. How tragic. This is the end of the world as they know it, and they're telling each other, nothing's wrong. I feel fine. Life is great. But this is the empty life most people are living today in our society. Not much has changed in 2,500 years. Folks, this is not a victory party. It's a let's ignore reality party. And we're about to see what happens when God crashes that party. God crashes that party when, number one, when pride disregards the worship of God. According to history, the date is October 12th, 539 B.C., when King Belshazzar threw his massive party. 2,500 years later, in 1957, at the Sand Studios in Memphis, Tennessee, Johnny Cash recorded a song he wrote about Belshazzar's party, this party. In it, he sang these lyrics. He had concubines and wives. He called Babylon paradise. On his throne, he drank and ate, but for, but for Belshazzar, it was getting late. How true. And yet, in his arrogance, he didn't even want to admit it. He didn't want to acknowledge it. Belshazzar's party notices it was a party of indulgence. Belshazzar invites a thousand nobles, Daniel tells us, along with their wives and concubines to his party. The king fed them lavishly. He served them lots of wine. And he provided them with lots of women for sexual pleasure. And because the Babylonian culture lacked any kind of restraint, they overindulged in food, they overindulged in drink, and they overindulged in sex. From the world's perspective, listen, it's the ultimate party. It is the grand party, an indulgence of food, drink, and sex. 
But from God's perspective, wine is a mocker. In fact, Proverbs tells us that under the influence of alcohol, people lose all sense of decency and make fools of themselves. No wonder the Bible warns us against drunkenness in Ephesians 5.18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. This party is a symbol of that. Instead, Paul tells us, be filled with what? The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. And so it was a party of indulgence, but it was also a party of irreverence. Evidently, this party got off to a rather wild start because what happens next is blatant blasphemy. Look what it says in verses 2 through 4. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and they praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. Let me tell you, this party was unashamedly blasphemous. It was designed to exalt the gods, the false gods of Babylon, and mock the true God of Israel. They even dared to drink their wine out of the sacred vessels that were taken out of the temple in Jerusalem. These vessels were, were set apart for holy use in the worship of God, but Belshazzar uses them now in a very vulgar way. They're drinking wine out of them. They're mocking. And as they do, they're singing and they're praising the gods of gold, silver, and bronze, and wood, and stone. Gods that have absolutely no power. It's a defiance towards God. It's unashamed mockery of the things of God. In other words, it's a total disregard for the worship of God. It's as if Belshazzar is giving God the proverbial middle finger as he takes the things of God, which are intended for the worship of God, and he misuses it to praise his false gods. That's the definition of blasphemy. Belshazzar and his guests, they are drinking, if you can picture this in your mind, and singing, and they are mocking the worship of the Most High God. And that's when God crashes the party with this hand from heaven. Notice this in your notes. The reason God crashes this party because God will not be mocked. He interrupts the party with a message written on the wall of the king's palace. And because of Belshazzar's mockery of God, these fingers appear and start writing a message on the wall. In verse 5 tells us in the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. If you can picture this in your mind, there's no body, there's no arms, there's no face. There's just a hand from heaven that wrote a message on the wall of the king's palace. You can almost hear the music stop as everyone looks up to see this terrifying message from God. Verse 6 describes the king's reaction to what he's seen. Then the king's countenance changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his hips were loosened, and his knees knocked against each other. Let me tell you, it's clear that God has King Belshazzar's full attention right now. 
His countenance changed and his thoughts frightened him. And when it says his hips were loosened, it means he lost control of his bodily functions. In other words, he's so scared he peed all over himself. Notice how God has a way of getting our attention and bringing things back to reality when we need it most. Paul Put it this way in Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Here's the point. Be very careful. Oh, be very careful not to misread the silence of heaven after you have sinned and to think that somehow because you are not struck by lightning that you can get away with your sin before God. Always remember, slow justice is not no justice, but a gracious display of God's patience for the purpose of repentance. When does God crash the party? Folks, he crashes it when pride disregards the worship of God. But there's another time when God crashes the party, and that's when pride disregards, number two, the works of God. Just as suddenly as the fingers appeared, the fingers vanished, but the words remained on the wall. Four words in Aramaic, the trade language of the day. What did these words mean? King Belshazzar called in the astrologers. He called in his enchanters to interpret the handwriting on the wall. He even offers a reward to anyone who can figure out the meaning of the words. Verse 7 tells us, Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Now, on the surface, does that not sound like a rather great reward? I mean, it's a chance of a lifetime, is it not? But with the Babylonian Empire about to end, this reward is like being promoted to first mate on the Titanic after it hit the iceberg. Sounds good, but who in their right mind would want that honor? This is our world, though. This is a picture of the culture in which we live. The world promises us so much, but it cannot deliver because it is perishing. Our world is drunk pretending it's not perishing and then promising what it can't deliver. Of course, all the king's wise men, and I put that in quotes because... Even though they're called wise men, they are wise nonetheless. They do not know the wisdom of God. They tried to figure out the handwriting on the wall, but they all fell. Verse 9 says, And King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed, and his lords were astonished. In other words, they're perplexed over the handwriting. In other words, the king is now desperate since no one is able to interpret the handwriting on the wall. And it's at this point that the queen mother comes in. She comes in on the stage in the king's palace, and she suggests basically, when all else fails, call the man of God. She knew something about Daniel, who he was, what he could do through the power of his holy God, and how he had helped Nebuchadnezzar with interpreting his dreams. And so she tells Belshazzar at the end of verse 12, call for Daniel and he will tell you what the writing means. 
king has enough sense to do just that. So he called for Daniel, and he was brought in before the king. Daniel is now an old man in his 80s. All his life he has served faithfully under the kings of Babylon. In all his life he has remained faithful to his God and to the task that God has called him to do while living in Babylon. And now Daniel is called in for his last act of service to a Babylonian king. Now let me pause here for just a moment. Because there is a great lesson for us right here from Daniel's life. Now, this is not in your notes, but I want to bring it to your attention. Have you noticed that Daniel is often overlooked, he's forgotten, and he's unappreciated throughout the book of Daniel? In fact, Daniel is ignored over and over and over again until... A crisis emerges, and then he's called in. Why is that? I think there's two reasons. One is Daniel didn't seek earthly recognition. He didn't seek earthly rewards and praises from mankind. You see that when he tells the king in verse 17, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Some of you may be in this very situation. You may be in a relationship. You may be in a job in which you are being faithful to God day in and day out. And God is actually using you to be a blessing. And yet it seems to be completely unnoticed and unappreciated. No one is recognizing you. No one is, is giving you the pat on the back. No one is writing you thank you cards. And what Daniel reminds us here is to be faithful in the task that God has given to us and let God reward you in due time. But there's another reason here that Daniel is ignored. And that's because he is a godly man who won't compromise his commitment to honor God. The London preacher Joseph Parker once said, When the world throws an orgy, the children of God are not invited. Why? Because as Christ followers... We don't fit into that party. Our values just stand in the way when the world wants to party like that. But let a marriage break up. Let cancer hit. Or let the children get in trouble. Or let life hit rock bottom. And who do they call? Many times, not all the time, but many times, they call the faithful men and women who know the Lord. Daniel wasn't invited to the party, but when God crashed the party and no one had an answer, suddenly Daniel was the one man the king wanted to hear from. We never know the influence of a godly life until a crisis comes. You may not be invited to every party that your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers throw. But you will often get the call when the trials come into their lives. And when that call comes, let me encourage you to be bold to speak the truth in love. 
This is exactly what Daniel does when the king calls him for help in his moment of crisis. Daniel proceeds to give the king now a history lesson about the very works of God. Daniel begins in verse 18, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. In other words, who did this come from? Nebuchadnezzar in the beginning thought it came from him, but Daniel, oh, God used Daniel to remind Nebuchadnezzar, no, it came from God himself. In other words, God has revealed himself to your family. This is what Daniel is telling King Belshazzar in recent history. In other words, Belshazzar, let me tell you something about your grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, and his God. He was prideful just like you, but he was humbled by God. Daniel says about Nebuchadnezzar in verse 20, but when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was disposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. In verse 21, Daniel reminds Belshazzar that Nebuchadnezzar became insane, causing him to eat grass like the beast of the field for seven years until he knew something. Until he acknowledged in his heart and knew that it was the Most High God who rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. Now this history lesson, always oh, not a general lesson, it's a very personal lesson that Daniel is giving to Belshazzar. As you read through these verses here, you find that 15 times, Fifteen times, Daniel says, in reference to Belshazzar, you or your. This is personal. And this has application for us, because what this means, it doesn't matter what your parents or your grandparents confess about God. What matters is, what do you confess about God? What do you worship? Is it the Most High God? Is He your God? Belshazzar should have paid attention to the works of God in the life of his family. And yet, he disregarded it, and he's without excuse. Daniel says in verse 22, But you, his son, Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. Understand, Belshazzar, he is not ignorant about the works of God here. He is without excuse. Daniel says he knew all this. How tragic this story is. Belshazzar knew all about what God had done in his family to Nebuchadnezzar, but he chose to ignore the power and the grace of God for his own life. And that's the problem with pride. Notice this in your notes. Pride elevates ourselves against God, and it always, always, always brings a fall. The Proverbs tell us in 16, 18, pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. What is pride? 
Daniel defines it for us from the life of Belshazzar in verse 23 when he says to Belshazzar, and you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. The word translated lifted yourself up, it means to boast, to elevate, or to lift up. And this is exactly what Belshazzar did. He lifted himself up against the Lord when he disregarded the worship of God. And then notice the folly of his arrogance when Daniel tells Belshazzar at the end of verse 23, and the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. Belshazzar, he failed to honor the Most High God. The God who held his life in his hand. The God who truly rules over nations and people. And this kind of in-your-face arrogance always brings a fall. And that's why God crashed the party. With the handwriting on the wall. Mene, mene, tekel, farsen. So what does it mean? Well, here's what the handwriting on the wall means. Notice this in your notes. Mene means numbered. Means numbered. And then Daniel explains it. He says to Belshazzar, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it in verse 26. Tekel means weighed. And then Daniel tells him, King Belshazzar, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting in verse 27. Perez means divided. And in verse 28, Daniel tells him, Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. One writer, Dr. Campbell, summarized the handwriting on the wall this way. Belshazzar, your number is up. Your number is up. You did not measure up, and your kingdom is now broken up. Belshazzar's party is thus exposed as the ultimate act of folly. Listen, he was feasting on the brink of the grave and celebrating on the edge of extinction, and he never even knew it. The handwriting on the wall here is a clear warning of God's judgment, all because Belshazzar failed to give the honor that God is due. You fast forward to the New Testament, and this theme is repeated again. This is not just an Old Testament God. This is the God of the Bible. And you read in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, where Paul writes, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but became futile in their thinking and in their foolish hearts were darkened. It's a serious warning here for us all. And yet, what we see is that God crashes the party, number three, when we disregard the Word of God. When pride disregards the Word of God. If you can believe it, Belshazzar displays one more act of arrogance when he disregards the very words of God. Daniel has just told him this warning from God. And what did Belshazzar do? According to verse 29, he gave Daniel the promised reward and promotion despite Daniel's previous objection. What good is this promotion when his kingdom is coming to an end? It's the final act of an arrogant dead man. It's business as usual for him. Belshazzar completely disregards God's warning, the handwriting on the wall. It's like he snickers at God. He scoffs at God's word when he should have been humbling himself. He should have been seeking God's face and pleading for God's mercy. 
for Belshazzar, the party is now over. God's patience has now come to an end. In fact, notice this in here. In light of God's word, Belshazzar's heart is still full of arrogance instead of repentance. There's no brokenness. There's no humility. There's no repentance. Belshazzar's heart, it is still hard and it is still full of pride, but he can't ignore the truth of God's word. He just doesn't respond and repent in light of God's truth. It's sad and it's tragic. The party's over for Belshazzar. Verse 30 and 31 says that very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. And so once again, we see the key truth to the book of Daniel. God rules in the kingdom of men, and he appoints over it whomever he chooses. In other words, our God is large and in charge. There is so much we can learn from history and even from Bel King Belshazzar here. So what should we learn? Well, here are three life lessons to ponder. First lesson is the rule of God is indisputable. Listen, folks, the God who has all authority over history and the kingdoms of men has all authority over our lives as well. Kingdoms come, kingdoms go. But God's kingdom is the only one that will never come to an end. Belshazzar prays, if you can imagine this, he prays his false gods of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, ascribing them glory and honor. And yet his gods couldn't keep the Most High God from crashing the party. Nor could they keep him safe from the surrounding armies. The Lord is the one whom we should stand in awe of as the Most High God. He holds your life in His hands. King Nebuchadnezzar eventually came to acknowledge this truth and to accept this truth and the humility. He praised Daniel's God as His God. Have you come to that point in your life? Have you humbled yourself? Which king here reflects your heart toward God? Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar? And make no mistake about it, we all think we're kings in our own little world. And we will either come to that point of repentance and humble ourselves and bow before our, the one true God, either now or we will do it later when it's too late. The rule of God is indisputable. The second lesson, the justice of God is inescapable. Just think with me for a moment here. Think of all the opportunities that Belshazzar had been given to repent. He saw the works of God in his family's life. He saw the warnings of God written on the wall of his palace. He even saw the words of God on the wall. And yet he ignored all those opportunities to repent of his pride. 
And what happened? God's judgment was swift. It came that very night on his life. And so I exhort you, don't presume upon God's patience and long-suffering. His warnings to us, they are clear and evident in His Word. His warnings are a call to repent, to turn to Him, and to trust Him, and to give Him praise and honor. King Solomon himself tells us in Ecclesiastes 12.14, God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. The name changes, the names change, the situations vary, but ignoring this truth has always led people into bitter, bitter consequences in life. Like Belshazzar, there are walls that we try to build to hide our sin from God, to hide our sin from the eyes of God. But we must see these walls for what they are. They're nothing more than foolish defenses that must be abandoned for our own good. There is no wall so high that it can protect us from the judgment of an all-powerful, all-knowing God who will one day bring every dark thing to light and judge sin. The justice of God, it is inescapable. But there's a third lesson, and that is the fear of God is indispensable. In 2013, J.I. Packer wrote a book called Taking God Seriously. To promote the book, the publisher made a video, and Packer says in that video, the church is in trouble. The trouble is that we are not taking our God seriously enough. What's the proof of that? We're not taking his word seriously, seriously enough, and we're not making sure that our faith matches the teachings of Scripture. So how do we begin to take God seriously? How do we begin to recover the fear of God in our own lives? Well, I think we can start by looking at God's judgment on Belshazzar here in Daniel 5 and looking at it through the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to know that outside of Christ, that judgment is on us. That Belshazzar's judgment is our judgment. Listen, we have been weighed in the scales of God, and we have been found wanting. And the consequences is death, and the duration is eternal. That's the bad news. But make no mistake, there is good news. And the good news is, in Christ Jesus, we have been weighed in the scales and found full of Christ's righteousness. Woohoo! And that's the message of the gospel. Please know that the God who judges is also merciful and gracious. And the reason God warns us so strongly in messages like this, in stories like this, is because, listen, He loves you so dearly. You say, how do I know that? Because Paul tells us in Romans 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates His own God demonstrates His own love in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. There is no warning like the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross warns us that the penalty of our sin is death, but it also saves us from it. The blood of Jesus blots out the handwriting of condemnation that has been written across our lives if we will come to Christ in humble repentance and faith. 
Isaiah 1.18 promises, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And Romans 8.1 tells us, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we have hope in Jesus Christ who doesn't divide our kingdom, but He adds us, get this, He adds us to His own kingdom. A kingdom that will never, never end. It's eternal. And in the end, the handwriting on the wall, it presses home the truth that now is the day of salvation. Now is the day to come to Christ in humble repentance and faith. And it is also a day to make a new start with the Lord. This is the day to repent and to receive God's forgiveness for our sins. It is a day to forgive. It is a day to repair broken relationships. This is the day to know that the gospel is for you. It's a day to know that in Christ Jesus, you are accepted, you are cherished, and you are secure for all eternity with life in His presence. And that, the hope of the gospel, the good news of the gospel, that message of the gospel, that should motivate us, that should catapult us, that should launch us to live in such a way that honors the Most High God. And if we're not, if we're not living in such a way, then by all means, let us fall on our knees and ask God to search our hearts and to examine whether we are in Christ. Because true Christ followers will have a desire to honor the Most High God. Not perfectly. Oh, by no means, not perfectly. But progressively over time as God's Word and God's Spirit and God's people shape us and conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. That is the hope of the gospel that we have. It is the message we proclaim. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ. For it is both a warning and our hope. And may you help us to see our pride and to repent before your judgment comes. And so, God, please give us the grace to honor you with our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The praise team's going to sing just a, a short verse, a chorus here. Let me encourage you to do business with God as He is leading you to do so.